All right, looks like we're going to get started here. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Good morning. I know it's bright and early, especially for a, a music conference, but uh, thanks, everybody, for rallying to get here today. Great schedule today. It's an exciting conference. Uh, I hope you all are geared up for an exciting day of panels. Today, we're going to talk with our esteemed panelists, uh, what we call the Enablers, a really good group here today that really helps create the underpinnings, the infrastructure that makes digital media, makes streaming media go. I'm going to ask everyone to introduce themselves uh, and to, in 10 words or less, tell us what your company does. You can have lots of time to plug your solutions and your, and your company as the, uh, as the panel goes on. So we'll start with Michelle here to my right. And Michelle has the, the lucky job of being the voice of the customer and the voice of the consumer here today as a representative from Samsung. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Michelle Engel. I'm the Director of Content Marketing and Programming for Samsung Music Services. What Samsung does, we're creating innovative and delightful music experiences for the Galaxy customer. Next, Daryl. I'm uh, Daryl Ballantyne. I'm the CEO and founder of Lyric Find. And what we do is provide lyrics to everyone, everywhere. My name is Jim Lucchese. I'm the CEO of the Echo Nest. I'm concerned about my 10-word limit, but we are a music intelligence platform. We help our customers better understand music content and music fans. <laughs> it was hyphenated at the end. It was hyphenated. I'm Dean Bolte. I'm with uh, Omniphone. I'm the managing director uh, here for the Americas. Uh, Omniphone uh, licenses, builds, and maintains subscription music services for our uh, consumer-facing partners. <laughs> Close. It's hard. It's uh, you know, it's 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 almost uh, just an exercise here to show you guys. It's hard to talk about what we do. Um, you know, as infrastructure providers, as underlying content providers, it's it's hard to get it out in ten words or less and explain to people very quickly what we do. A lot of the companies that you see up here do a lot of different things and uh, try to service various aspects of the of the industry. So. Uh, it was a little bit of a test for our panelists, which they did okay. So the first thing we're going to talk about is access. I think, you know, we, we believe across the industry that we've largely solved the access problem. You can get to your music now many different ways. But I'd, I'd like to, before we dive in, assuming that the access problem has been solved, I'd like to ask Dean to comment on that. Have we, have we really solved the access problem at this point? I'm going to say yes and no. I think yes for can you get to the content. Um, I think yes. I think that there's still, though, a very large segment of the population, and we've been talking about the casual music listener, and I, I'll throw my wife into this group, that still finds it a challenge. Uh, and I use that word challenge um, in a couple different ways to get to the great um, stuff that we're building and creating out there. It's still a little bit just a step too hard, I think, for that person to engage at this point. So I think we've got some work to do. And Michelle, does Samsung believe that you've solved access? I think that access is an interesting word. Um, uh, Samsung definitely has increased the addressable base, right? So we're putting handsets and tablets and televisions in the hands of more people than any other company is doing. However, uh, when it comes to music access, which is what we're talking about today, I think everyone would agree we're a long way from it. We as the industry uh, still trying to bring the content to the forefront so that people um, know what it is and how to use it. Okay. So maybe our, our 
theory that access is solved is wrong, according to the panel. But uh, we are going to focus a lot around kind of what's next in the music industry. And I think the first uh, question I'd, I'd throw out there to the panelists is, you know, we're really a lot of discussion right now about creating compelling user experiences. I'd love to understand what the panelists think that means, and I'll throw that to Daryl first. Well, obviously, I think it means including lyrics with your <laughs> with your service, but uh, you know, it goes it goes a lot beyond that. I mean, it isn't enough just to have uh, just to have the music, or even just to have the music and and lyrics. You have to have information in there. You have to have the ability to help people discover new music and provide uh, uh, things like artist bios or all of the the different album art and imagery that come comes with it to create just a compelling user experience for people and there's too many things where it's just like a, a YouTube almost where it, all it is is you hit play and there's the music and it's not necessarily a good listening experience except for one-off things or so let me just challenge that for a second I mean, if you look at any of the kind of major services out there they've all got some form of artist bios artist imagery you know many of them today including lyrics if you talk to the folks that run those services those pages are some of the least used pages throughout their services so does anyone really care about any of that content or are they just looking for the music I think people care. I mean, if you take lyrics, for example, because that's what I know the most about, uh, there's a massive amount of demand for it. It's one of the top search terms across the Internet. And it really just becomes a question of integration. We see on different services that we license massive swings in what the usage is based on how the integration is done and how the content is added in. If it's something that takes three clicks to get to or is buried somewhere, of course it's going to be the least trafficked one because nobody knows where it is. Or if it's only on the desktop version and it's not on mobile where all the usage is, the ratio is going to suck. But if it's something that is built into a compelling experience and integrated properly, then there's a massive adoption rate. Michelle, Samsung's thoughts on a compelling experience and does... Does the idea of lyrics and imagery and artist bios and those kind of assets, is that what creates a compelling experience? I think that uh, I think what's important to keep in mind here is, is the consumer, right? So uh, the consumer is coming into a music application to get to music. They want to be able to uh, get into their favorite music or find new music as soon as humanly possible. And uh, Samsung is far more interested in, in the innovation um, and creating opportunities to um, to allow someone's self-expression through music to be realized through the technology in our devices. And I think you made a great point in that if the UI is not um, not bringing forth that information in an intuitive fashion, then the consumer loses, right? And so so does the, the, the product itself by having multiple pages that aren't looked at. They need to be easy to get to. So Samsung, where, what we do when we're doing building our these the, uh, the applications and the services is look for ways to create these intuitive and innovative experiences for the customer. Um, so if lyrics are populated in a way that make the experience better, make the, the music come alive in a way um, 
for someone to interact with their phone, it's a win. If the uh, imagery, discography, biography, if all those pieces are integrated in a way that's not getting in the way of uh, the consumer getting to their music faster, it's a win. If those pieces are integrated in a way that stand in the way of getting it to the music, then it's a loss. Okay. Jim, uh, one of the, the elements that uh, Daryl mentioned was discovery. I know a big focus uh, for Echo Nest. Talk a little bit about how discovery is part of creating this compelling experience and how you guys believe that plays into you know, solving this, uh, this issue around compelling experiences for the consumer. Yeah, sure. So um, I think we are thinking about it in kind of – in two areas that it sometimes are are in conflict. One is creativity in the user experience. So um, some of the most interesting customers and people that we work with are, are helping people solve this problem of staring at 30 million songs in compelling new ways. Um, but often, you know, I'd say earlier on in, in, in evolution, that creativity wasn't necessarily ever accountable to actual metrics, whether it's driving user acquisition or engagement or loyalty or repeats. And I think the key to bringing those things together is to actually understand your audience and to understand there isn't one audience. There are multiple clusters of types of listeners that you're trying to go after. And I think we are still in early days in having the vocabulary of understanding a kind of user-centric engagement bringing those things together. And you can't be all about acquisition, you know, listening session length and not think about creative ways to push the experience forward. But I think it's about bringing those things together. And right now they're, they're coming together, but I think it's still kind of early. Okay. So from your perspective, there's not one compelling experience. There are many experiences for different types of listeners, different types of consumers. Do the, the solutions that you provide or any of the folks on the panel provide have to be flexible from that perspective to allow for that differentiation of experience for different types of consumers, and how do you how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that kind of phase one was helping customers figure out, understand the 30 million songs. So understand musical attributes about them, cultural attributes, understand the catalog in some way. Now the most interesting work is in understanding customers and being able to identify, like, for example, one of the things we do is identify the overall kind of passion level or discovery or other taste profile attributes, how mm-hmm. people listen to music, to cluster the casual listener and the people who want to dive really deep and check out the lyrics and make sure they're up to date everything that you know a given artist is doing. So just being able to look at your X million subscribers or prospective listeners and be able to put them in those buckets so you can tailor the user experience in some way is... Um, I think, a critical data problem that we are in the early stages of solving. Okay. We'll talk more about discovery and how it relates to things like radio in just a few minutes. Uh, Dean, do you want to talk a little bit about compelling experiences and what your uh, company, Omniphone, is doing to help enable these experiences for your customers? Yeah, I mean, I think I want to echo kind of what's been kind of going down the line. I think... um, one thing, uh, you know, we talk a little bit about mass customization. You've got this huge breadth of, of customers out there, you know, the millions of people. But we all know that every, pretty much probably everybody in this room has a little bit different musical taste. And so that experience is going to need to be, uh, you know, designed for me. And how do we do that with the services that are out there, right? If you take a, a, a solution out there today, um, it's got a, you know, a standard look and feel to it. How does that make you know, me feel comfortable in there because I like to listen to, you know, band X versus band Y. Uh, and I think that's one of the challenges 
you know, some of the things that we do at OmniPhone is try and, um, you know, create those Legos, those building blocks, so the different services can either decide, hey, we're going to target this consumer base. Maybe we're going to go after, uh, you know, the DJ. We're going to go after the, the the mass user here. We're going to go after the the heavy, um, you know, uh, uh, rock listener. We're going to create something really uh, unique for these guys. Our job is to create, you know, a tool set so we can build, so those people can build those many different things out there and, uh, and adjust. And so our challenge is making sure that we, you know, uh, being out in the forefront on a lot of different things. And as a pl- back-end platform provider, that's really the, our biggest challenge today because there's a lot of different tentacles out there for a lot of different great innovators in the, in the space today, probably many of which are in the room to, um, right now. So first, uh, first put you on the spot question for the panel then. It sounds like we have consensus that we need flexible interfaces, adaptability in terms of how the experience is provided to the user, because there's different types of listeners. What's up, man? <laughs> wow. And thanks, Daryl, for buying us all coffee. We really appreciate that. Um, so, you know, has anyone gotten this right yet? You know, yes, no, and if yes, who? And we'll start down with you, Dean. Um, this is an honesty test here, too. Well... <laughs> <laughs> it did put me on the spot there. I'm going to say it depends, right? I think. Uh, I, I don't know. My, it seems my pretty simple react- yes no question to me. Yeah. Has anyone my gotten ni- it right yet? Yes or I, no? I, I don't think. I, I would say no. If you're going to put me to that spot, I, I think yeah. no. I think no. Jim? It's <sighs> uh, so early. I answered it. All right. So I would say that from a personalization standpoint, um, I think the goal ultimately is to be able to do it with no UI at all, right? So. If ultimately you don't have to take your phone out of your pocket for your phone to understand what you want to listen to at a given time, obviously that's, I think, where we're ultimately trying to get. We're not there yet. I think when you look at who's... Is that a yes or a no? Well, hold on. So that's how, <laughs> that's how I'm scoring. No one's gotten there yet. Okay. I think along the way, Pandora and Last.fm were the first to introduce the idea of an artist or a song seed as a way to customize and then provide implicit and explicit ratings. That was a big step forward sure. that lots of other people have then followed, improved upon, or whatever. I think Songza also has introduced the idea of kind of contextual listening. Um, still, I think you've got to express it in a way where it could still be a lot better. But I would pick those as two steps along the way to personalization that have improved getting closer to understanding who you are as a fan and what you want to listen to at a given time and to do it more intuitively. I'm going to, even though you didn't follow instructions and give me a yes or no, I'll give you bonus points for a good answer. I mean, it sounds like you, your opinion here is we've made good progress and there's steps towards Seriously? ultimately getting there. Seriously? I, think <laughs> I didn't know it was I, yes I, or no. I thought uh, you said pick company. Daryl, yes, no? I, I think we all know that that was a no. Um, <laughs> I... Th- I think it's it's a no, and I think Jim was talking about having no UI. I think the answer is more in in micro customization of the UI because I think we there, call that personalization, don't we? Yeah, but on a on a different level. Like there are there are subsets where the answer is yes, because there are people out there that Pandora is the perfect solution for. There are people out there that Rhapsody is sure. the perfect solution for, but that's a minority. And I think we need to get to the point where. Each user. Mental note to everybody: turn your phones off. <laughs> where, where each user can customize a service specifically for them, not just for the music they get, but the experience 
within that. So if they want to have lyrics, they can say, yes, I want lyrics to be front and center and synchronized with every song. Or, but I don't want bios, so just never show me that or leave that off. Or I don't care about album art, so show something else in that real estate and allow that that really deep dive into personalization so that one service can be the perfect service for a lot of different people but be a completely different service for each of them. Okay. That's that to know as well then? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that sorry Dean, you you ended up early in the in the cycle here. Uh Michelle, we you know, I know this is a hard one for you representing Samsung, but uh yes no? You also said I'd represent the customer. That's right. And the consumer. So from the customer, consumer uh, yeah, perspective, right. has anyone gotten this right yet? So I, I think it's important to note that a lot of us in this room and, and beyond kind of look at our own belly buttons in this scenario, right? So um, uh, the, the fast... The fast and early adopters um, might have a yes or no answer to this. I'm going to look out for the mainstream, right? Um, I think the bulk of music consumers um, have no idea what any of us do and no idea <laughs> what these products are, even those that have tens of hundreds of millions of you know, supposed users. It's, I think the, the, the key here is constant innovation um, uh, and having a, an environment where developers are, are welcome uh, to come and, and offer their tools to, uh, to build better products and uh, that's where Samsung comes in with our vast amount of technology and addressable base, uh, allowing the developers to play with these tools and help get us to a place where we're solving the problem, having our first developers conference at the end of the month. Thank you. Um, but uh, I think that that is the, the, the next key is, is just constantly trying to get to the mainstream. Um, and when we get there, then the answer will be yes. Okay. Uh, we're going to go uh, a little nerdy tech here for a second for those of you in the room that uh, care about this stuff. Let's talk about platforms. Um, you know, a lot of what we're doing here is about achieving scale and being able to uh, serve a massive consumer base across the globe with our various solutions. How do you think of the concept of platforms and what are you doing to make sure that your solutions are platformatized and that you have uh, ways that other folks can, can leverage those platforms? And I'll start with you, Michelle. Because I know you have some exciting news. Well, <laughs> well, as as we discussed earlier, nerdy is the new thirty, so we're in a good place here. Um, uh, you can but, all tweet it. Tweet yes. it now. You heard it here first. <laughs> Hashtag next big thing. So uh, I think from a, a, a platform perspective, I think what I just discussed from for, from Samsung, it's desperately important that uh, that our partners and vendors uh, have easily accessible platforms with APIs that we can then, you know, turn into awesome things, right? So um, uh, it's that... That is key um, for us to bring our innovation forward. We're constantly creating these uh, experiential, awesome, future-driving tools for our devices and our technology. And to get to what we were just talking about, we need to have partners on the back end that can provide the easy access to the resources to make our products better. So, yes, I mean, platforms are are important. I think that was the end of the question, but platforms are important, um, and uh, and we need you guys to, to rock at them. Daryl, talk about your platform. Well, we're sort of platform agnostic. We tie in with, with everyone, and we, we uh, provide APIs so that people can build off of any platform, and, and uh, we also provide just straight data dumps as well so that it can really, for Can, can for we us, call it something other than a dump? <laughs> I, I've always had a problem with the term data dump. 
I mean, can we call it a data it, export, it, it, a data yeah. delivery, a data something else? Uh, Sorry, I, just a, <laughs> no, data movement doesn't work either. <laughs> uh, a pile, big pile of data that we, we provide. <laughs> Uh, and so we integrate with everyone so that it can go in any platform and be really easy for people to integrate. When I mean, we were integrated with with Steven, we're integrated with with Jim, we're integrated with Rovi and other people that aren't up here. Um, so for us, our our mantra is sort of to be platform agnostic. But you do have your own APIs, correct? We have our own APIs, and, yeah. And what percentage of your customers use your data ex- data deliveries, data exports versus <laughs> your APIs? Uh, probably about 5%. You, 5% of customers use the data deliveries, um, but that probably accounts for 35% of traffic, okay. maybe. Okay. So. Jim? Yeah, I mean, for the Echo Nest, our developer platform is our product since mm-hmm. since we got started. And when we got started, we had a mountain of data and information about music. And honestly, we didn't really know what people were going to do with it. And the cheapest way for us to get out there and learn was to open up a dev API sure. and let developers kind of steer us in the right direction from mm-hmm. an R&D standpoint. So. We, you know, started as developer API and it's still central to our business. I guess when we think about from like distribution of how our large enterprise customers work with us, what we're doing is different in that there's usually a lot of interaction, meaning we're we're behind the scenes watching user interactions to drive personalization. So that's you know requires uh, kind of API level access. So do you support data exports and do you provide those to some customers? Um, in you know in a in a handful of kind of special circumstances, yeah, but it's it's probably yeah it's flipped around. It's I mean, no, it's probably in the south of five percent range, I'd say. Okay, Dean. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, Omniphone is a is a backend provider platform for folks, and so this is inherently what we do. And, and our objective is to try to decrease the barrier of entry for. Uh, for anybody from a small startup to a very large multinational conglomerate that says, "Hey, I want to get into uh, a, a music service business," and and we spent you know ten odd years and lots and lots of money doing the heavy lifting, so uh, folks like that don't have to. And and our job is to balance specific unique needs that they may have uh, and go build those for them, as well as look out in the future and say, here's where we believe that the industry is going or where we think innovation is happening and build those within the platform itself so that any and all of our, our partners uh, can access that. And that's one of the things that we bring to the table is if we build something on a platform, it's accessible uh, for anybody that, you, that works with us directly. So it's, it, you know. It, okay. So let's, let's follow on to that question then and talk a little bit about customers because ultimately the customer here is king and um, while you all may have lovely platforms that you've invested a lot of time and effort into they don't always meet your customers needs and they don't always fit perfectly in terms of the infrastructure that your customers are trying to deploy at grace note we like to say every customer is a snowflake right i think john sirocco coined that term when he worked for us now that you look at you know you look across the customer base especially as you look at some of the larger providers in the business the apples the spotify's folks who have their own very large well invested platforms 
talk a little bit about the tension between your platform and their platform and how do you how do you deal with that and Dean we'll start with you at the end well I think the question is uh, for uh, you know it's do I rent or do I own and that's a decision that you know any anybody moving into the space has to decide you know first and foremost and if you want to build it and you want to own it yourself that comes in two forms, right? From the technology perspective, and then from a brand and a and a uh, and a and a content side. Do I go out and get the licenses myself, et cetera, uh, or do I go out and partner with somebody that's already in existence? And so, it is a challenge. Uh, we try and guide folks down both paths. We obviously have a vested interest in wanting them to say, "Hey, we want to, you know, work with you guys to help us along the way." But uh, I don't think that there's a, a right answer for everybody. I think it depends on where they are in their life cycle as a corporation, what they're trying to do how they're trying to leverage music uh, for their interests, for their customers, um, and, and how important is it into their overall ecosystem on, on which path they go through. So if, if someone wants to leverage your licenses and access your content but not use your platform, is that possible? And uh, does anyone work with you that way today? Yes and no. <laughs> we are actually engaged in a process of, of trying to minimize the barrier of entry even more by taking our platform in a way um, from an API perspective to just get access to the content and to that catalog. But from a licensing perspective, they still have to have rights there. And so um, does that go through us uh, or do they go directly to the, to the rights holders themselves? And that's, I guess that's the question. And it ultimately, um, you know, we're trying to solve that challenge for folks. So that's a no? Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a maybe in the near So no, no now, but maybe later? Yes. Okay. Jim, so... Same question to you. I know a lot. You know a lot of what you're doing here requires this kind of real time interactivity. But you know, again, if you if you experience a customer that doesn't want to use your platform, that wants to write their own algorithms, control their own personalization experience, but wants to leverage some of your assets, is that a model you support? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at kind of it depends on how you define platform, but to answer your question, because I know this yes/no thing is important. Yes, um, you're learning. That's good. But um, but no, I mean, our our developer platform is just a way to efficiently get stuff across to our customers, and in most cases, it's the the flexibility of a developer platform actually makes that interaction a lot easier. Um, so. F- so there's, I mean, from a technology standpoint, I think being able to, for example, resolve various ID sets from different customers and just make that process easier just makes working with somebody a lot easier. I don't think any customer looks at that as a tension point. Um, I think you're, no you're, customer, not even the big guys who have probably, you know, arguably infrastructure and platforms that far surpass yours in, in many cases and, and who look at performance as one of the key you know, components of any decision around their, their vendors? No, I mean, in the context of, of ID resolution, absolutely not. No, I mean, I think the fact that we can say to them, well, because the big guys come in and say, here's our ID set, here's our data structure, deal with it. And we say, okay, because we can deal with it. Um, so from that standpoint, absolutely not. I think having that flexibility is actually critical to work with those guys. Um, I think what you're what you're aiming at there also, though, is the kind of operational externality, like the concern that, okay, I'm going to bring somebody into, I'm going to work with a company now that's going to be part of our API call stack in some way. So I've got a new external dependency. Um, I think, yeah, that's from a business rule standpoint, that's something that that anyone at scale is going to be concerned about. And I think it goes to whether or not 
from a service level standpoint, you can make them comfortable that you can deliver. Um, if you can get there, then I think for the most part, you know, you can get there. But yeah, you once you're once you weave yourself into the user experience like that, the stakes are definitely high. Daryl, uh, the yes, um, <laughs> but I mean, for uh, for us, if people don't want to use our our APIs, then that's when we go to the data delivery, and <laughs> and and we'll customize solutions for people to make to make things work. There are people that use content that we don't have but we'll provide the licensing for for it and give them feeds of what we what we have. There are different scenarios whether it's static lyrics or sync lyrics that require different levels of integration and then we we customize that. The and what Jim was saying with performance is one of the big reasons why people will use the, host the data locally rather than using our APIs because they don't want to be sending a call uh, across the internet and waiting for that, you know, half a millisecond delay with e- with each call. And the downside, of course, though, is, is with us we need reporting to pay royalties. So anybody who's hosting the data locally has to generate reports and stats and send all that to us to to be able to do royalties. So the the advantage of using the APIs is that it's a much quicker and easier implementation, and it happens automatically and so that's why 95 percent of our clients do it that way but we do we customize solutions for anyone who needs one really so michelle we'll we'll change the question a little bit for you for samsung you guys have invested so heavily in your own platform over many many years you've built up tremendous capability you're serving hundreds of millions of of consumers worldwide why in the hell would you ever work with a small startup platform like you have on the the table here versus forcing everyone to just work inside of Samsung's platform? Uh, it's a great question. Um, uh, I think that the key for, for us is um, whatever we can do to maximize the uh, surprise and delight from the technology. Our first and foremost goal is to bring forth amazing uh, technology and devices that uh, consumers fall in love with and can't do without, right? And music is a very strategic piece in, in building that solution. We uh, are held to very, very high standards of how fast and how often we turn around new, uh, new devices and new technology and new exciting features for the customer. I think that's the answer. The answer is speed to market, right? So if we've got uh, partners that already have done all the heavy lifting and are experts in what they do um, and can help us bring this technology and these amazing experiences to the market faster, then we're ignorant not to, right? So so the, the goal there it is doesn't to... doesn't necessarily mean that you won't. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. That's correct. But no, I think that the, the situation is finding a partner who can be flexible, right? And and can play into the very um, secret proprietary world that, that is Samsung and, and bring forth the content. Does it mean it's forever? No, right? It could be in a, in a short-term uh, solution until our teams can, and, can come up and, and, and bring the solution forward. And that's where this developer partnership comes into play and the ability for the developers to play inside our tool set. That was not a yes or no. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, but it was okay. okay. No, we'll, we'll let you get away with that one. Sweet. Um, we're going to talk radio here. Um, I think everyone in the audience knows we are in the midst of quite a craze around radio. Um, you know, Virtually every service provider in the world is adopting some sort of freemium model around radio. 
the latest entrance uh, into the space is Apple with their release last weekend. Um, you know, first, Michelle, to you, uh, is Samsung getting in the game? And, and if so, when? Um, fabulous question, Stephen. Um, I, I, you know, we're not going to talk about Samsung's strategy or, or, or plans for what we've got coming down the road, but... But I will would love to tell you, um, uh, you know that that uh, again we're we're the team that I that my team is responsible for innovation and staying ahead of the needs and desires from a music consumer perspective for Galaxy. So anything that is going to better or follow the lead of that customer is being investigated and uh, and developed um, inside our ecosystems. Um, so although I don't have a yes or no answer for you today, I can promise you that we're working on innovative working music hard. solutions for our customers. So you, know, you come from a radio, traditional do. AM, FM radio background. So you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, do you believe radio is the answer? Is free radio, albeit maybe adaptive here in the interactive space, is it really the answer for consumers or is it just the latest fad? You know, it's funny. Um, so radio, uh, I, I programmed uh, radio stations and was an air talent and regular terrestrial radio for, for, the, for my first career. And um, left it because it was not alive and well, right? So it was uh, when you say it's free, we all know that terrestrial radio is not free. We're listening to 15 minutes of commercials an hour, so let's let's be real um, that that it's not free. Uh, I think when we talk about radio today and in this room and in what we're doing with with radio and streaming music products, I, it's hard for me to call it radio, right? It's hard for me to say that a uh, a, a radio station that I can I can control. Um, either by seeding or by um, you know liking and not liking uh, or by banning. Like if I never want to hear Nickelback again, I can do that. You can't do that with terrestrial radio. So it's it's a it's the same word. It's a different product. Um, uh, so I, I think the the long and short of it is it's radio in an evolutionary scale against what the actual consumer is looking for. Um, I, I think that. It has not found its pace. I don't think that there is a current solution that matches what the consumer wants, but I think it is ever evolving. And I think before it's all said and done, we'll find a much better word than radio for it. Okay. Jim, I know, uh, you know, you, you guys are powering a lot of the, the, the radio solutions out there in the marketplace and continue to focus on that. You know, how do we avoid the Me Too cookie cutter, every solution out there looks the same? You know, how many thumbs up and thumbs down can we do in our lives? Change it to a star. Ooh, it's a different paradigm. You know, talk to us a little bit about how we avoid the commoditization of the radio experience with all these folks chasing the same functionality. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um... I like the skull for... Uh, Ooh, nice. <laughs> skull it. You got to skull it. Um, uh, so, yeah, we work with... Radio, radio is kind of central to what the use case, a lot of the use cases that we power, and that question is a question we get from our customers a lot, and I think the successful implementations are, one, there's a recognition that lean-back listening is, um, is something that consumers absolutely want, and, and if you look... Will. And always will, and if you look at... Time spent listening, even on on-demand services, lean-back still you know, tends to dominate once there's a kind of a, a reasonable um, lean-back listening experience. Mm-hmm. So if you take a couple of different examples, like SiriusXM, who's a customer of ours, 
their programming and their their channels are kind of central to their brand. And their mm-hmm. 25 million subscribers really they they resonate with the Loft or with 70s on Seven or whatever. So their view was to basically customize within that program channel. So uh, Clear Channel, you know, has a much more when you listen to iHeartRadio, it feels more like terrestrial radio than say. RDO's UFM, which is much more social. So in each of those examples, our customers come in with a vision around who they are and their kind of unique differentiation that kind of that drives the, the lean back listening experience. And I think they, I mean, they all think they're, they're, they're pretty different, but in, re, in reality, they're not that different. I mean, there are some things here that, that differentiate for sure, but do you believe the programming elements alone are going to differentiate enough to make the consumer actually care? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I'd say that within those within those three examples that I just gave, mm-hmm. I think you would be hard pressed to plop a kind of loyal listener in one of those buckets into the other one and have them survive. I mean, they a SiriusXM loyal listener is a SiriusXM loyal listener, and they they listen differently than an iHeart listener or a, a, you know a, a repeat listener on audio. So I think they're there are real differences between them. Is that because they're a creature of habit and they're just used to... Are you taking my job there, buddy? What's yeah. going on? Yeah. Where's my coffee? <laughs> Roy will get you one later. Uh, Go ahead. Is it just because we're creatures of habit and we get used to one interface, we get used to one program and using that and then we're resistant to change? If, if you told them that it was SiriusXM but it was actually... Pandora, and they didn't know, would they notice a difference? I think a lot of consumers, the majority of consumers, would not know the difference and would just take it as, as it is and say, yeah, okay, I like this. I, I agree with you. And, and coming from, from, oh, hello, um, coming from uh, regular radio, I think there's a, a lot of arrogance um, and, and from a programming perspective that we call loyalty. But actually is exactly what you said is 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 habit. Um, you look at someone who listens to a radio station for 30 hours a week. Is that because they're loyal or because they don't have access to change the channel? Right. Um, there's a big difference. That's right. That's right. That's right. So um, with these services, I mean, discoverability is the key. Someone gets to a service, they get to XM or they get to, um, you know, one of these the other uh, streaming services. They find it first. They start using it. It's much easier for them to stay in that service than it is to move to something else. From a programming perspective, um, I think that a lot of us are using a lot of the services are using the same back end and they're using a lot of the same type of uh, cluster analysis and, and, and algorithms to to get to the content. Um, and from our perspective, what's going to be the differentiator is that technology and that intuitive place um, to get to the no UI, right? To get to the to get to get the solution where you're literally reading the, the customer's mind and you're providing them with some type of lean back scenario that they love and they are passionate about because they don't have to do jack but carry their device around. So I think, um, I, I don't think that the services currently are that different from each other from a programming perspective. The experience is key and also following it with the, uh, the intuitive um, design and, and technology is key. Dean, you want to jump in here? I, Thoughts on radio and what are you guys doing in the space? Well, you know, you know, we do, we do what our customers want us to do. Um, uh, and, and a lot of them are moving into the space. I think they're doing it for different reasons. One of which, 
you know, we, we've talked, touched on a little bit here, but I, th- I think we have to be, uh, we just talked about a little bit is it's, it's almost like a tool for land grab today. Um, if, if a service has got a free radio solution, it's a way for me to get an entry point into that customer and potentially have them into my service. They get used to my service and then I can upsell them to the other things that I want to do. And so I think that there's, uh, there's been a lot of interesting movement in the last 6 to 12 months in that capacity where people are – a lot of these services are saying, hey, you know what? We feel like we have to have some sort of free radio solution to get people in comfortable with my UI and then move forward uh, beyond that. And so, Do you guys have licenses for radio outside the U.S.? Uh, it we do not personally as, a, as an organization, but, again, we, can, we have acquired those for our customers okay. on their behalf. So global, global radio is in our future here in terms of service it, well, providers being able to take these non-DMCA, in the non-DMCA parts of the world here, uh, we're going to have free radio solutions? Well, radio is defined very differently outside the United States. Uh, and so I think you will have um, a similar type of experience outside the U.S., but it won't be the same. It'll be, a, it'll be very Free to different. the consumer, though? Um, that's the challenge. Um, I think that there'll be Is that some a no? Stuff. Well, <laughs> well, the question is, though, I think we, we, at, we touched on it earlier. I, I can't remember who mentioned it, but it's not going to be free. There's going to be some sort of ad. There's going to be some sort of a, a point of entry, some payment, like, be it via ads or, or some other mechanism. Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing that just from a, a licensing standpoint, uh, a DMCA-like listening experience is licensable now much more easily for a global service um, than it was, and it's the, it reduces customer acquisition costs. But to, to your point earlier, as far as kind of is radio all the same, if that's the only reason to do it without a real kind of differentiated, differentiated product vision, then I think that that's, not a, that's, that's a dangerous path. Um, but, yeah, you're definitely seeing that um, – that even if it's not – it may be free to the user, but it's free to the user because uh, the company subsidizing it is going to pay considerably less than they would for an on-demand experience. And so it's a, it's a cheaper way to bring people into the funnel. And you're seeing that now. Okay, let's spend a couple minutes here before we open it up to questions and talk about what's next. Um, the future, the next 24 months, next 36 months – what does it hold for innovation in the streaming space? And as companies up here that support that, you know, what are you guys doing to innovate? And it's, if there's specific things you can talk about, not necessarily specific things your company is working on, but areas that you believe are important to the industry, what, what are they? And Daryl, we'll start with you. Well, well, I think one of the most important areas is, is international expansion. Uh, and we kind of just went over a lot of that. So, but being able to reach scale uh, beyond just one country uh, is a big differentiator. And why, why is it important? Because all of these services need to reach massive scale to be able to be profitable, and it's just not possible in one country. It was was it RDO that a couple months ago said that if they reached forty million. Paying subscribers or something like that, um, then they could be profitable, and that's it's really tough to do that in one country. Uh, so we have a lot of companies that are just driving very quickly towards a wall. 
Yeah, like with with right. the royalty structures <laughs> and with with the the scale needed to support the the technology and the infrastructure and everything for a truly high quality streaming service, then yeah, there there has to be massive scale for it, it to to make sense. And I think with massive massive scale, a lot of these complaints about the royalty rates will go away. So when you look at royalties on a per user basis, they're pretty good. Uh, if somebody's paying ten bucks a month uh, for access to to music, it's one hundred and twenty bucks a year. That's way more than what people were paying before when we were buying CDs. Uh, but the problem is right now that not enough people are paying ten bucks a month. So. Jim, um, I certainly agree with um, with international. Um, but I would say, from our standpoint, the kind of the defining theme for us on the R and D side is around understanding musical identity, understanding who you are as a music fan, and being able to apply that in much smarter ways. And that ties into the monetization question it ties into better personalization and better user experience and so to us you know phase one was you know everyone gets dumped with 30 30 million songs they've got to understand them and now we're dealing with tens of millions of music fans and we're basically treating them all the same and there's an enormous opportunity to do a much better job helping our customers understand their customers and so that's our focus do you see the the labels getting more flexible in terms of licensing making licensing easier so that smaller services that are maybe more specialized can start to pop up and focus on a specific genre a specific region a specific type of consumer um I haven't seen that from a kind of a small startup type environment. What I have seen is that with some of our larger customers at scale, particularly um, internationally, um, content owners being much more willing to, you know, give it a shot in places like, say, Southeast Asia or other territories, um, because there's an enormous there's enormous opportunity there that's not really being monetized today. And so I think you're seeing it in the context of international, but typically those are more with companies that have kind of multiple revenue streams and already are a tr- kind of a trusted partner of a content a t- content owners. Dean, innovation? Uh, I think, it, you know, there's a, a couple things that have already been touched on, but but one that, that we're seeing is that um, innovation in the business model. How, how do you address that, um, that still large pot of the casual music uh, listener that is not in this space today. I mean, casual we, means not paying, right? Um, either not paying, not a, not even aware, right? Doesn't even know what Spotify is. There's a, still a big chunk of people. I mean, we live in this space, so we're very aware of it, right? So we live it every day. Yeah, it's like yeah, all of Canada. Um, uh, <laughs> my relatives that live in Minnesota, um, <clears throat> you know. So, so I think that there's there's business models. There's a there's going to be in, in our my opinion in, in our opinion is that there's going to be a, a quick evolution of business models to address that group to get them into the space, educate them, and make them aware that this is you know they can have access to all this great content for a fee that either they're paying. Uh, that they know they're paying or that they don't even know that they're paying for it through another um, subscription or through a purchase of another product or something like that. I think that that's going to be uh, a pretty significant evolution. I think that's going to happen maybe not here in the U.S., but in other parts of the world where they might be a little bit more aggressive uh, or more interested in uh, doing some stuff. Michelle, we won't make you answer that question because we know you can't tell us what Samsung's doing, but 
Do you have any comments there in terms of areas that you believe innovation will come? Sure. Yeah. And I, I actually, to the international point, it's beyond important to us, right, yeah. is the ability to to not only find partners that can license and distribute on an international level, um, because we're, I mean, we're launching into hundreds of countries on a, on a yearly basis, right? So, I mean, that's that's incredibly important to us and, and how we can vet out and, and find the right partners. I think that, um, I, I think you guys really hit on, on the key things uh, from from a music service perspective, a lot of people are doing the same thing with the different UI and some of the UIs aren't even that different. Right. So, um, but we have no proof that it's exactly what the mainstream wants. Um, so I think we're constantly looking for that evolution of what the product is. What's important from a Samsung perspective and what we're bringing to the table, um, is not only, you know, innovation from a technology perspective, but innovation from a marketing perspective. There is no larger marketer in the world than Samsung. And, uh, something that everyone in this room saw over the summer was Samsung committing to a partnership with Jay-Z. Um, and uh, the the partnership that happened with Jay-Z was uh, it clicked off a lot of boxes. Was it good for him? Heck yeah, it was good for him. But it was good for us. Yeah, he was fine. Um, But what it did for us, uh, what it did for Samsung was show that yes, music is strategic to what we do, but also understanding that it's not necessarily about traditional distribution. It's not necessarily about sending someone into a store to purchase an album or see an album or here's an exclusive streaming opportunity, blah, 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 that everybody can do. It was more about creating that VIP access through these amazing devices that Samsung brings to the table for a short-term blast with a massive music star. Does it mean that's something that becomes cookie cutter for us? No. But it it shows that that, uh, music is strategic and innovation and technology can make it very exciting for the customer. It was a very innovative program and congrats for those. An industry first, for sure. Yeah. Um, so we're going to open it up to questions here for the last 10 minutes. Do we have any questions? We've got one over here. We've got a mic that's going to come over to you. While the mic's getting there, last kind of put you on the spot question. Uh, do we owe a thanks to Pandora for teaching the world about streaming, starting with Dean? Yes or no? Yes. No. Jim? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I got to give it to the last FM, too, if you're going to yep. do it at that time. Daryl? Yeah. No, they only taught the U.S. Okay. Michelle? I think they were a very important trailblazer. Okay. Questions? Tom Murphy from the Recording Academy, the SF chapter. I want to thank Michelle for mentioning an artist that we actually got through almost this entire presentation without talking about musicians or artists. We've talked about users and user experience and platforms and UI. And so the question I have to you folks is is sort of twofold. As we're moving to a more digital ecosystem, we're losing cover art, we're losing albums, we're losing packaging, we're also losing credits, we're losing the people who created it, who wrote it, who engineered it. And so do you support growing standards across the board so that people can find information about the people who made this and how are the artists involved in this discussion? We're not losing them, right? I mean, they're still there. We're just losing the recognition of those folks as part of the distribution experience, right? So, Every, every <laughs> single deal that we do requires that when the lyrics are being displayed, there's a, a credit to the publisher and the songwriters that we provide. So every time it's displayed, they're recognized. 
I think it comes down to metadata and how important it is for us to get to a universal place where we're all able to to, to grab at the, the correct metadata and make it shown to the customer. I agree with you that it's important to mention the artists and the musicians because without them, we wouldn't have jobs or products. But it also is up to us to bring forth what the consumer is looking for. And if it is something they're looking for, we'll work with the developers to bring it forward. Jim, Dean, any comments there? No, I mean, I think obviously it's critical uh, to, just to echo the same thing. We have to have that in there. I think most of the services do provide it, but uh, I think we can do a better job for sure. Okay, next question. I'm Bill Lay. I'm a local uh, marketing consultant and former editor-in-chief of Bass Player Magazine. Tom Murphy stole my question. <laughs> but I'm going to follow up on it a little bit. Back in the me- in the uh, physical media era, you know, uh, we could find that uh, Flea played bass on Bust a Move and You Ought to Know, and we could find that Rod Temperton wrote both Heat Waves Always Forever and Michael Jackson's Rock With You. These were ways of discovering music for the consumer and, you know, enhanced the music experience, as well as for... Uh, countless musicians who uh, are not as famous as Rod Temerson and Flea, it was a source of their livelihood because they could uh, actually claim their publishing and uh, session credits. I'm wondering, uh, to follow up on Tom's question, uh, can you guys speak to uh, what efforts you are uh, undertaking to prioritize uh, or to work together, or if it's something that really needs to be kick-started from from the ground up to... uh, standardize this aspect of the metadata equation. Dean, you want to talk about that a little bit as it relates to kind of the rights payment side? Are we not paying people because we're not displaying metadata in these services? Or do you feel like on the back end you're handling the payment piece appropriately? Well, I think that, yeah, I just want to make sure I understand the question right. I think there's there's a couple things that are happening, um, at least that I'm aware of, and probably some other things that I'm not aware of, but I believe digitalmusical.org is, is doing a lot of work around the metadata um, consolidation and standardization, and so to address the question around um, can we do more and what are we doing around that, they're really spearheading this to make sure that there's, there's consistency uh, and that the metadata is actually um, correct and accurate. And so I think that's, uh, you know, I would suggest if, if that's a great group to go to and they work across uh, the entire industry uh, for this. Uh, as it re- relates to, you know, to payments and right holders, I mean, we have obligations, obviously, to make sure that that happens. We work very, very hard to ensure that, uh, you know, that the reports and the, and the, and the payments go out to all the, the rights holders uh, specifically because we understand that that's the, the critical path here. If that doesn't happen, uh, we don't, we don't, we're not in this business. Seems like a lot of this discussion. This is not the first time this has come up. Is is a lot about credit and just making sure that the right people are recognized for their creative work and that they they get the right credit in terms of their involvement. And I think you will see some evolution in some of the major services to do a much better job to bring back kind of the equivalent of the liner notes and the the level of detail there. Uh, that you got with a physical album, and, and I think we're, we're, you know, now we solve some of these basic building block issues around access and getting the content, expanding the basic functionality. You'll see more of a focus on this in the coming months, and especially around things like classical music, where it's very, very complicated. Uh, you know, we're working on several solutions with big providers to really up the game there that you'll see soon. I can't tell you which ones, but it's coming. Hello. Yeah, it seems really obvious. Just get info on a song. Just would be the most 
natural paradigm. Um, all right, so it's no one's mentioned playlists. Okay, and it seems to me to be the raging battle and a key differentiator between these different services. And Beats has certainly shot. We call them experiences now. We don't call them. Put players. a shot across the bow and Spotify <laughs> reacted. And so, but you all haven't been talking about playlists as a differentiator. So why not? What? Jim, you want to talk as the, as the discovery guy here? You want to talk about playlisting and how, it, uh, how it's important and if it's an area of differentiation? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we generate somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 playlists a second across a bunch of customers right now. So they're certainly important to us. We don't necessarily make a distinction between whether or not a playlist is being generated kind of in the context of radio, so never ending, or it's a playlist with a kind of a start and an end and an overall arc to it. Um, I'd say that right now, uh, most of our customers are the ones programming playlists and in, in, in applying a bunch of our technology to deliver lean back experiences. Um, but uh, RDO, I'd say, is probably at the forefront in putting some of those tools in the hands of their uh, user base to help uh, their users curate and create playlists and put them out there more. And so, kind of, again, back to musical identity, um, having the playlists you create and that you curate being part of your overall. Um, identity online. So, yeah, I think uh, maybe conflating playlists and radio, we weren't being as explicit, but I think it's a central point of differentiation for all these services. I think the raging battle there is going to be more about machine versus human than it is about, you know, our playlists important. I think we all agree that the curation experience is an important part of the experience. The question is just how you get there. Uh, you know, can a machine through algorithmic approaches do it as well as a human being that knows a lot about music? There's still a lot of debate on that point, and Beats, you know, is is taking a very human-centric approach to that. We'll see how that turns out in terms of the quality of the playlisting and whether or not, you know, they have a, a truly differentiated product or not. Last question here, folks. I'm Emmanuel Legrand. I'm coming from London. I work for Record of the Day and One Movement for Music. Uh, if we were to believe Pandora, it seems that the licensing process of content is getting in the way of innovation. Is that the way you feel? And that's not necessarily a yes or no question. You can probably expand on it. You should start with a yes or no, and then you can explain your answer. We don't want any wishy-washy answers up here. Dean? I don't... I think that's a, you know, t to use the phrase that, that licensing is getting in the way of innovation is, is I you know, this is going to be a harsh way, but I think sometimes it's, a, it's an easy excuse. Um, I think the rights holders have, have been very engaged uh, and are trying to, uh, to facilitate innovation as much as they can. Uh, they have um, they have a perspective about how they see their their business moving forward. Uh, they want to protect that. They want to grow that. They want to build that as much as possible. And sometimes those are in conflict with what um, you know uh, somebody that's in their garage coming up with a new idea has in mind. And I think sometimes um, it's an easy way. Well, the the rights holders just didn't let me do it. Um, but I think it's about you know working with them closely and and uh, and, and trying to find that uh, perception gap and close that and and find a solution that makes sense for for both parties. But I, I think they're moving. I think they're you know everybody's trying to find uh, a way to uh, continue to grow the pie. And I think they're they're fully in the you know forefront of it. So, Michelle, last comment for us on that point. I thought you said it was over. It's not over. It's the last one. This is it. You got the chance to close it. Oh, man. 
You don't have to. You can pass. No, I, I think I think the answers are there. I, I, we can't say that anybody's in the way of it. We can uh, definitely look for solutions from 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 partners that make it easier to go um, to go to market. Um, if speed to market is the is is the key to it. Um, if working directly is slowing down the process, then going to a partner that already has the established answer might be the way to go. All right, I'd like to thank our panelists today. Let's give them a big round of applause. Thank you, audience. Great audience. Everyone enjoy the rest of your day.